0: Okay. The last time in chapter 8 we saw AI take 2 and the children of Israel learned their lessons from their defeated AI. They corrected their mistakes and then they became victorious at AI. So tonight we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. We're going to see again Joshua and the children of Israel fail in their obedience towards God, which was the Well, and hopefully we can learn from that. We see his second big mistake, uh, the second big mistake under Joshua's administration. So starting with verse one. It says, Then it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, That they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. This side of the Jordan, it says. Well, the west side, pagan turf. And of course, when they refer to the Great Sea, they're talking about the Mediterranean Sea. What we see is a multitude of pagan kings in Canaan who saw what happened at Jericho. And then they saw what happened at Ai. And then they saw what happened at Bethel. And they get smart. But they get worldly smart, and they realize they can't beat the children of Israel individually, so they form this alliance. Worldly wisdom. Strange bedfellows come together when they come against God's people. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage, and why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why do people plot a vain thing? What a foolish, futile thing to set yourself against God and against his anointed. And of course, it's referring to the Christ, but also God's people who are called by his name. And the children of Israel were called by his name. So they try to get together and they fight against the children of Israel. And you may say, well, what else could they do? Well, we already saw an answer previously in Joshua. What else could they do? They could have humbled themselves to God Almighty as Rahab's family did, right? The problem with humbling oneself is, though, however, it's, well, humiliating. But humbling oneself is often a good choice. I think of even when we deal with other people. You ever get an email from somebody and you... you, Emails are the worst form of communication. Right? Because you don't know how to take it. You know, and, and sometimes you get irritated and think that somebody is saying something harshly, but maybe that's not the way they meant it. And if you try to defend yourself right away and you send something back, thinking somebody, you know, gave you an insolent tone and you send something back in the same, you could hurt their feelings. And as a Christian, it's a lot easier to humble yourself and accept what's being said and pray about it and deal with it than to just fire back and then, then say, gee, I wish I could have taken that back. I've been there in my life, you know, you, you, you feel bad. You're like, gee, if I just would have been a little humble, things might have gone a little bit better. So these guys, because they're not humbling themselves and because they're not thinking about the big picture, they're not thinking about, you know, the monotheistic God, they end up getting humiliated at the end anyway. Verse three. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. And went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. Well, for those of you who have Bibles with uh, maps in the back, you can turn to it. Uh, I I I really enjoy geography, so I kind of have it in my head. But if you go west of the Jordan, right, you have Jericho, which is not far uh, north of the Dead Sea. So north of the Dead Sea, west of the Jordan, you have Jericho. And then you go further to the west and you have A.I. and Bethel. Well, what's next after that? Gibeon. Gibeon's next on the hit list for the children of Israel, so to speak. So what happens is all these Canaanites make alliances, these kings, except the Gibeonites, also known as the Hivites. Instead of fighting the children of Israel like the other ones are going to do, they're going to use craftiness. What I see right away when I started studying this is the two schemes of Satan. One is the direct assault on God's people. Now, anyone who's been a Christian long enough has, knows exactly what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil roars around, uh, he roams around like a, a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. That direct assault. The second example, which is more insidious, is a sneakiness, shiftiness, cleverness, right? It's a subtlety. It's a subtlety to take us off of our feet. Now, we can find that in 2 Corinthians 11, especially verse 14. It says that Satan himself transforms himself as an angel of light. And to me, again, that's far worse because he, he's able to take you off your feet, whereas if you have a full frontal assault by the enemy, you know, you are probably inclined more to pray in that situation because you see it, it's coming, it's, it's, it's there, it's in your face, whereas the subtlety is differently. You know, it, it, it lulls you into a false sense of security. But the Gibby Knights' plan was this. They're going to give the appearance that they're coming from a far country. They take multi bread and you know crummy wine skins and take you know their holy shoes right not holy as in set apart but literally holy <laughs> and they probably walked a certain distance and traveled and they threw away the good stuff and put on this crummy stuff and the old bread and they were going to trick the children of israel into a treaty because they know outrightly they can't beat the children of israel because god is on their side so they're going to use trickery now we see this in numbers 25 with balam and balak Balak, the king of uh, Moab, and Balaam, the prophet. Really, he was a prophet of God, but the guy was kind of confused about his, his, uh, his profession. And he says he can't outright curse the children of Israel. So they devise this plan where the women of Moab are going to seduce the men of Israel and form these unholy alliances in Numbers 25. And that's what works. Not the cursing, not the coming against them, but the deceptiveness. So you see, all throughout the scriptures, when Satan can't beat them, he joins them. And he does it underhandedly through the back door. In some circumstances, the children of Israel could make a peace treaty, but specifically with the land of Canaan and the certain borders that God set apart, he said you're to conquer everybody within those borders. Deuteronomy 7 will elaborate on that. Anyway, going back to Satan's subtleties and the way he seduces us, there's a lot of new ways that, um, and I see the advertisements, I see how people try to redo church, how to redo spirituality, but to to really wrap this up, the, the biggest inoculation against this subtlety and this deceptiveness and us being taken off of our feet is through prayer and the word of God. You can't reinvent the wheel. We can't come up with these new great ways that we're going to be super Christians. The way that God set it up from the beginning is the way that works, right? Verse 7. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, Well, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Ah, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So, again, they used this trickery as if they were from um, not from Canaan, which they were. Uh, figuring that if the, the children of Israel thought that they were from a far country, they would say, ah, they're not within the borders. We could just make a covenant with them. And that's what they did. But it's funny because they said, um, almost as if they were interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've heard of your God, what they did to the, the Egyptians and the, and the, the kings and all. But you know what? It turned out to be a ruse. It was all trickery. Verse 12. This bread of ours, which we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they are torn. And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Trickery worked. The story seemed to check out, but the nail in the coffin was verse 14. I'll say it again. Let me read it again. But they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. I think this is the most important verse in this chapter, if not the whole book. And certainly it's on the top ten in the whole Bible. They did not check with the counsel of the Lord. Do I have to ask how many times we've heard something that sounded good and we didn't check with God? And some, some may say, well, I did check with God. It still didn't work. Well, Part of checking with God includes waiting on God. Like we like to give God timetables. You know, God, something's happening tomorrow, and you know, I didn't get around to praying for it, but I really need your help, so I'd like an answer before tomorrow morning. You know, he doesn't he doesn't work on our timetable. So and also in Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, in the last line it says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. The last line of Isaiah twenty eight sixteen, whoever believes will not act hastily. As people of God, we're supposed to be patient. We're supposed to always be in prayer. Um, and we're supposed to wait on the Lord. And I believe that things come together easier when we continuously have that mindset. And then, so from here, we have verse 15, which says, So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So what happens is they make some type of binding decision. They give their word on something that God wouldn't have approved. That hurts. And then verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. That sinking feeling. We've been duped. (laughs) So as you see, each verse successively gets worse here. right? You have the not checking with the Lord and then you have, you know, they, they see... That, that it was a ruse, and, and we continue to move on from there. And to us, have you ever committed yourself to something as a Christian and find out you've been had? How many people here have ever been had? What, and what about spiritually? People people are had all the time. Um, even churches get had. I remember when 9-11 happened, uh, there was people who, it's a shame, because many will capitalize on any tragedy, and certain people would go to these churches and, and pretend that they had a loved one that was just things that you couldn't imagine doing. And, and it, it found out later that there was one instance in Oldbridge where the FBI contacted somebody there because a woman was was going to and, and she was a scam artist and she was using 9/11 as her to, to pull on people's heartstrings. So we should never be impulsive. We should never be, you know, God doesn't want his people to be duped. If we're in prayer, you know, we're going to be had sometimes, but it shouldn't be a regular occurrence. So the question is, how do I get myself out of this mess? Help, God. Joshua and the children of Israel get done rejoicing over their victory at Ai, and then this happens. As God's people, we do have a tendency to rest on our laurels, and that's when Satan moves in. Uh, Lloyd Pulley, uh, Pastor Lloyd did a great job. He talked about likening the struggle, the spiritual struggle with wrestling. And he talks about how when you wrestle somebody, an opponent, sometimes they make you think that they're weaker than they are. And then when you think you have them in the wrestling move, then they, they pull out their real strength and they get you down. So it's a constant pushing and pulling in a wrestling match. And he, he speaks of that with, with us, um, sometimes our spiritual experience with wrestling with Satan. But Satan does that. He'll lull us into a false sense of security. He'll make us think we have the upper hand. He'll make us think our marriages are great, our spiritual life is great, you know, our prayer life is great. We tend to kind of back off, because that's what we do in human nature. And then he strikes. The Christian life is is, um, a series of highs and lows, peaks and valleys. Some mountaintops experience, and then, you know, the low experiences. And actually, if you look at Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't long. It was actually right after the Holy Spirit descended and God said, this is my son who I'm well pleased and everybody's rejoicing and this is great. And then what happens after that? Do you remember? He goes into the wilderness and gets tempted, right? But the good thing is Jesus is always our best example. See, he prevailed. We often don't and we have to cry out to God. But Jesus was the best example in, in everything. So the, he did a great job after the, uh, the whole temptation thing. And then you have the ramifications of being in leadership and not being prayerful. Verse 17. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepharah, Beroth, and kirjath Jerem. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rules of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the rulers. So this is, you know... They've got the spiritual ramifications, they have the ramifications with being duped, and then they have their own people who are really not thrilled with them at this point in time. But i got to tell you, this is a good uh, lesson for leadership. And I often pray, even if it is a decision that I don't know is coming up, I pray, Lord, as a pastor, please help cover my decisions, even the ones that I don't know that are coming up, because you never know, right? Then the people murmured against the leadership. One thing to stand firm on, on a good decision and people just being annoying and complaining, you'll always have that in leadership. <laughs> you'll make good decisions and not everybody agrees with you, you know, if, and, and that's, that's life because everybody has different opinions. But to stand firm knowing it was a good, a good decision. But it's another thing to make a bad decision and then have nothing good to say when the people call you on the carpet legitimately. That's not good. And that's what these guys are dealing with right here, um, but they can't go back on their word because they made it in the name of the Lord. Now that's another thing. That's how important God's word is to him. That's how important keeping our promises are. Ecclesiastes says that don't be rash with your mouth to make promises that you can't you can't fulfill. It's better not to make a promise at all than to make a promise that you can't complete. Giving your word. Jesus said let your yeses be yes and your noes be noes. These people uh, would give words and they would swear oaths, but in the New Testament, Jesus says, "Forget about all that because it's being abused. Just whatever your word is, do what you're going to say, do what you say you're going to do. Okay, verse 19 it says, "Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. So, you know, it's, it's a situation here where they didn't do the right thing in the beginning, so they're going to try to fix it by, I don't know, I think kind of taking a bad decision and turning it into a good one. Okay, we can't kill them, so what's the next best thing? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll hold them in servitude. Um, And what happens is you see the slippery slope, and this isn't good either, and we'll explain why. But you see the slippery slope of bad decisions because of one omission, right? It just gets worse and worse and worse. But I think that, you know, we all talk about the sins of commission, adultery, stealing, killing, all that kind of stuff. But really, that all starts with not being connected to God. The sins of omission, the little things that we leave out, lead to the sins of commission, now, I, I think this is a bad plan that they have. Exodus 34.12 says specifically that if you start to make these treaties with these people, they're going to infect you, they're going to bring in their false gods, they're going to you know, um, do all kinds of stuff that's going to take you away from me, God said to his children of Israel. Some would have disagreed with me. I, I checked with Weir'sby, and he kind of looks at it a little bit differently, but I, I think Exodus 34.12 really nails it uh, on this one. I, I believe that it is a bad decision. You know, when I look at I look at stuff like uh, you know, this the small slippery slope, people, you know, the sins of omission uh lead to the sins of commission or the sins of omission lead to little sins of commission that become big sins of commission. Um, it's just a little recreational drug. I'm not hurting anyone. It's a victimless crime. I've heard that one before. Prostitution's victimless crime, you know. Drugs, victimless crime. Um, Guys really into sports, you know, Sports Illustrated or well, the swimsuit edition, it's part of the rest of Sports Illustrated. Like that's an excuse to look at that. You know what I'm saying? It's that little slippery slope. I've actually heard the term uh, from not from Christians, from maybe people that I know uh, that aren't saved. They'll use the term soft porn, like any porn is good porn. You know, soft porn is, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm not a pervert. Soft porn, you know, and it's it's just it, it boggles the mind. It totally boggles the mind. Or even if you have a business, I'm just skimming the top off. I'm just taking a little for myself, a little graft, you know, not a big deal. Um, you get the picture, right? It's little stuff becomes big stuff. Verse 22, then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us, saying we are from very far when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands to do what seems good and right to do. For you to do to us so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them and that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day so you, you see what happens is they the people you know they, they're supposed to attack and then the leaders say well you can't attack because we made a, a treaty with them and then they get confronted why did you deceive us you know now we can't attack you, but it's like right from the mouth of Satan. It's not, well, because we really wanted to live, because we really wanted to know your God, because your God did great and wonderful things, and we heard the reports. It's right here. They heard the reports. They they Maybe, have, maybe some of them spied and saw some of the things that God did. But that's not what they said. They didn't say, you know, we, we want to just... Put all our our idols away and we we want to follow your God. Please let us be converted to Judaism. It's not what they said. You know, they they heard about it, but they didn't want to be killed. You know what? We would rather be slaves than dead. That's their, their response. We deceived you because we knew the gig was up and we didn't want to die. That's the response. Now, I'm sure that many assimilated into Jewish culture and certainly had a conversion experience. I don't doubt that. Uh, what, what are the statistics? What are the odds? I don't know. It does show that as we go further into the scripture that they actually were serving. And they did serve uh, to bring the, the, the cut in the wood and the water and, and, you know, doing things for the temple and um, getting the supplies. So I have no doubt that some of them had a conversion experience. But I also have no doubt that many of them, used their pagans, gods and idols and they still kept them and they knew they weren't going to get killed so they deceived a lot of the children of Israel. And again, there's there's two ways to look at this. Um, The last line, it says, in that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in this place which he would choose, meaning God, it's capitalized, even to this day. The understanding in the Hebrew was that Joshua did it in the way that God would choose. And you could look at this two ways. You could say, it was it what Joshua said that God would choose? Was he putting words in God's mouth? Or was it literally uh that he did consult later on and did ask of the Lord and said, Hey, you know, I learned from my mistakes. I didn't check with you last time, now I'm checking with you. Where do you want me to put these guys? Right? So it's probably the probably the, the latter one makes more sense because, you know. Because in the opening it says that and now, 25, and now here we are in your hands to do this as it seems good and right to do this to us. It is like a constitution then, right? Because Joshua knew that, you know. Well, no, 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 no. I, actually, that's good that you brought that up because what it shows is they're looking at man having their lives in man's hands. They're not seeing the big picture. Whereas verse 27, it says that uh, the person who's writing the book is saying that um, that Joshua would choose what to do with them based on God's wishes. So you have two different perspectives. You have the pagans saying, mercy, you know, we're, we're in your hands. Not fully grasping the big picture of God. They think that they're beholden to a man, but Joshua is saying here in verse twenty-seven, you know, I want to put these guys. Since we can't kill them, I want to put them where God would would prefer to have them because he he, he knows God. God's his father. He's looking at the big picture. That's where you know. I mean, his, he, he gave a note, but is I mean, God is greater. Well, well, you know what? Let me let me finish it up because I kind of want to wrap it up, and then you can. We'll pray and then uh, you can ask questions. Okay, see if this clears it up for you. I look at two major themes to take from this. Joshua 9.14, they didn't check with God. Sins of omission leads to sin of commission. Not being properly grounded in our relationship with the Lord leads to faulty decisions. Lack of prayer. Now, that this is where we come in, God's people. Lack of prayer in the believer's life can be devastating. But, two, the second point is, when repentance comes after a bad decision, God often, not always, covers that decision and brings beauty for ashes, as the scripture says. So, to, maybe this might answer your question. I, with this, what it looks like is this. This is really important. God certainly can cover up for a mess, especially somebody who's leading his people, and they it was an ignorant thing, it was um, a faulty thing, it was something that they didn't... It seemed like something small, but you know, it turned out to be a problem. God can certainly cover up for a mess. However, God's first idea is always the best idea. The best idea would be that Adam and Eve didn't sin. And the best idea was that the world would would go and constantly, no matter how many generations were, were formed, that they would always be in God's will and obedient and not sin. That would be the best plan. But... God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, because we messed up the good plan. You know what I'm saying? And if it wasn't Adam and Eve and it got all the way down to me, I would have messed it up. I'm sure of that. So God's first idea for us is always the best idea. But you see in the scripture that he says, if you repent and you turn from your sins, then I will forgive you of your sins and I will, you know, you see what I'm saying? So anyway, those are the two points. And um Let's just end with a word of prayer. Not sin. That would be.